Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, good morning and welcome again to Christ Church. I believe your Bibles are open to 2 Corinthians 1. That is good news. Uh, there's a lot going on in the world and uh, it is very good to be together on this particular morning. Uh, so I subscribed recently to the Wall Street Journal, uh, old school style, like broadsheet in my mailbox, uh, just trying to keep up with things, you know, and I haven't had as much time as I might have liked in order to just read through the whole thing, but I picked up a few pieces here or there, and I don't know if you guys know this, but America's pretty divided these days. And this is always the case with humanity, sometimes more intensely than others, and uniquely so here in our country at the end of 2020. We're different, that's the issue, or at least that's a big part of it. And some of our differences are on the surface. We eat different food. We have different accents. We wear different clothes. We root for different sports teams. But some of our differences run a little deeper. You know, they're a little bit more connected to the things that we hold dear, our values, our beliefs, our principles. And you even think about the current moment that we're in like right now as a nation. And some of us think that the best way to understand what's going on right now is in terms of voter fraud. And others of us think that uh, the best way to understand what's going on right now is in terms of a refusal to, to concede. And so you have these different evaluations of our current moment, which themselves probably testify to different deep convictions about the way the world should be run and who should be in charge and how it should all go. And anytime we find ourselves in a position where our differences are so pronounced that it becomes difficult to see a way forward, that it at times even becomes difficult for humans to see one another as intelligent humans, one thing we can do is just pause and remember the ways in which we are the same, because we are the same in important ways. We all eat, we all drink, we all sleep. We all roll through stop signs without coming to a complete rest. <laughs> we all sing, not at the same quality level, of course. A lot, guys like Elijah and Chip sound like canaries, you know? I sound like a bullfrog with marbles in his mouth. <laughs> it's probably not that bad, but whenever people talk about singing in the right key, I'm like, I think, I don't even know what they're talking about. I sometimes think to myself, I prefer the house key because that's where this range belongs, you know? We'll just keep it contained. Anyway, we all sing, we all laugh, we all celebrate, and... We all hurt, we all cry, we all suffer. It seems like certain people are exempt from certain kinds of pain. Not all will know the pain of poverty firsthand. Not all will know uh, cancer firsthand. Not all will know the loss of, of a job, of a child, of a marriage. Not all will know all forms of suffering, but we all suffer. Like it's one of the few things in life that's it's guaranteed. Everybody hurts and everybody knows it. That's probably why Dostoevsky called suffering the law of our planet. It's probably why, I don't know if you know this name, Ursula Le Guin. I didn't know, I don't know much about her at all. She's a novelist, not super popular, but if you've seen her name, it's probably for the same reason I have. It's because there's this quote she has about suffering that's made its way across the internet. Let me read it to you. She says, you know, it's our suffering that brings us together. It's not love. Love does not obey the mind and it turns to hate when forced. The bond that binds us is beyond choice. Now, I disagree with much of the rest of what she says in that paragraph, but I wonder if on this score she's right, that the thing that holds us together is the thing that none of us ever choose and yet none of us can actually avoid, pain. Now, we don't all suffer the same. That's part of what makes pain so painful is it's like I get my own personal cocktail of misfortune, consequence, and the unexplainable remainder, right? Like my pain is not your pain and your pain is not my pain, but what is your pain? What makes you hurt? Where were you the last time 
you wept. Were you in a hospital room? Were you in public, maybe even like at the store or something, trying to hide? Were you in your kitchen or your car or on your couch or maybe face in your pillow because you didn't want anybody else to see? You know, it's pretty common knowledge that the holidays can sometimes make things worse. Supposed to make things better. Sometimes they do the opposite. Some people say it's because the, this increased demands on us at a time when we probably most need is to rest and make us think about the things that we don't have anymore. Some people say that, you know, the issue is this gap between our expectations of jolly feelings and the actual reality of, of disappointing interactions and whatever the reasons, I mean, it just happens. And, and of course, then you have all the super happy, wonderfully kind and sweet and smiling people on Instagram and Facebook looking all perfect and everything. The silver lining, no one's happy on Twitter. <laughs> You can just go feel better about yourself by hanging out there for a while. <laughs> I, I, don't know what it's, I don't know what your home looks like, but I'm going to admit it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas in ours. Like we got them up. We got the lights up. We got the tree up. We got it all up. We are decorating early. And we're not total weirdos. We're decorating early because we're actually going to be out of state for Thanksgiving. And so that's the reason. We're not avoiding Thanksgiving, although I'm not too sad about it. It's not, it's not turkey. I, I like turkey just fine, and I love my extended family. It's the memories, one of them in particular. It'll be 13 years ago this year on Thanksgiving Day 2007. It was November 22nd that year when my wife Beth and I lost our first child. It was an exciting fall. 2007 was a big year for us. I just finished grad school and we were ready to start a family and it was an important moment for us. And so and we got pregnant pretty quick and weeks are starting to add up and we're starting to share the news. We actually, we live in another part of the country. So we sent all our family back home, these little onesies to announce that we had this baby coming and it was all exciting and fun and, and neat and meaningful. And then the weeks added on and then it was actually Thanksgiving break. I remember the night before Thanksgiving, some weird things started happening in my wife's body and we knew not to panic because pregnancy is weird and things happen, but we also were worried. I mean, we're young, we're freaked out by this. And so we went to bed, wake up in the morning and see what's going on, woke up in the morning, things weren't better, things weren't right. And so we went to urgent care. We were urgent care for four hours, running tests after test after test, heart tests, blood tests, tests I don't remember the name of. And at the end of this four hour time period, they come to us and they say, we don't really know what's going on. So we don't have all of the normal things. It's a holiday and so we're limited. So you can go home and, and uh, you can you know, come back Monday and we'll figure it out or you can go to the ER, whatever you need to do. And I was actually planning to leave the country the next day. So there's no way we were waiting until Monday. And so we go from the urgent care across town to the ER. We check into the ER and six more hours of tests and waiting and trying to be thankful and trying to not fear the worst. And then I'll never forget it. Six hours after we showed up at the ER, 10 hours after our Thanksgiving day began, the doctor walked into the room and he said, I'm sorry, we couldn't find a heartbeat. It looks like your baby has died. And and my bride and I, we just, we just fell into each other's arms and we wept for a while. We learn later that this happens more, more often than you'd think. I mean, it's alarmingly common. It's a very unique form of pain. And so we kind of were learning about this and processing this. And, and, and we were, you know, going to counseling and just making sure that we were doing all the right things. And then 
A little bit goes by and we're like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna go for it again. And so we got pregnant again and it was the next spring in 2008. It was actually on Memorial Day when we lost our second. It took us a bit, you can imagine. It took us a bit to decide, where do we go from here? What's going on? Like we couldn't necessarily get all of the answers that we wanted because again, everybody says it's just common, it happens, just kind of decide what you want to do. And so it took us a number of months, but we decided to try again. And so we get pregnant again. We're actually entering that spring of 2009 and everything's great, man. It was super fun. Like the, the weeks became months and the, we started to have these appointments and hearing heartbeats for the first time and all this wonderful stuff. And, and then we had this one appointment. I remember it was on Good Friday and it was the one where it's like, if you pass this threshold, then you could probably be pretty sure that things are going to be okay. Like you can rest easy a little bit. And so we're going into this meeting meeting and I'm a preacher so I can hear myself telling the story you know about how on the day when we celebrate how God turned the world's mourning into dancing he turned our tears into joy but that was not the sermon I found myself thinking about as we left after finding out for the third time that we would not get to meet this child that we so deeply wanted to love those were dark years I mean Anger, rage, sadness, confusion, fear, numbness. And most of y'all know our story. Like, you know, the babies came and they're not babies anymore and they're wonderful, you know? It's great. Like, we give thank God for every single day. It's been a long time since those years, but you don't forget that because those days and those weeks and those months and those years, they were long. And for some of you, the gifts never came not the ones you asked for. You know, we all get that not all experiences hit us in the same way. It's pretty intuitive for us. Most of the things that happen to and in and around us and most of the experiences we have, we just, they happen and then they're over and then we forget about them. But other things, we, they happen and then we remember them in different ways. But then there's still other things that, man, they change the way you see the world. Suffering. It has a way of opening your eyes. It has a way of changing how you see everything. And I do wonder sometimes if that's why God saved the world the way he did, through pain. It's like, otherwise, would we even notice? Would we even turn our eyes to see? And I'm not saying that the primary purpose of the cross is to get our attention, but that is certainly among its more powerful effects. And you can't look at the cross very long without realizing that you're looking through it and that through it, that in its light and only in its light, you see reality as it is and reality hurts. Which brings us to 2 Corinthians chapter one. You're gonna have to forgive me for taking so long to get to the text. We've not been avoiding it or even stalling. We've been preparing because if you jump straight into this text, this 2 Corinthians 1, it just sounds way too cheery to be taken seriously. Let's read again what Paul writes in opening up this letter, starting in verse 3. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we're distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. 
Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. And then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. It sounds so sweet. It sounds so comforting. These are usually the kind of words that you use when you're describing somebody else's pain or pain that's in the rearview mirror or when you're trying to pretend that all is well when really kind of feels like life is hell. But no, no, I promise you that's not what this is. This is not Paul's Instagram story sufficiently filled for public consumption. No, 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 no. Second Corinthians is a, is a letter that is well acquainted with tears from top to bottom. Even on the surface, if you read through the whole letter, you'd see it. You'd notice that Paul is not in a great place and that he has often not been in great places. He describes his life in chapter four with phrases like hard pressured on every side, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, and outwardly wasting away. He gets a little bit more specific in chapter 11 when he starts to tell some of his story. This is his resume. He says in chapter 11, verse 23, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? and I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn. Yeah, this letter, this letter's hurting. And that's just on the surface, y'all. That's just the obvious stuff. You learn a little bit about the context of this letter, you'll discover that the reason Paul wrote this letter is because his relationship with the Corinthians, Corinthians, these, these Christian people in this area, was an absolute mess. It was fractured. He had said some things that hurt their feeling. They started to realize that he was kind of unimpressive, and so they wondered if they should respect him as much as they used to. He made some plans to come visit them, but then he changed his plans, and so they accused him of being fickle and timid, all these sorts of things. I mean, it was really a mess, you know, sort of like some of the conversations that may happen over the dinners that we have over the course of these next couple months. I mean, it was, it was real. It was life, and I think Paul wants you to know that it was life, and so I, even in our text, even when he starts out with all the comfort, comfort, comfort talk, we get a second paragraph. I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about all the stuff we've been through. And I, yeah, man, I, I think Paul does this to make sure that we know that the statement that he's making is said in the context of real pain. And I don't know. I always want to be careful, like taking our categories and putting them on the ancient world. And, but but if, I don't know if you've ever been depressed, but if you have, then the language of we felt in ourselves the sentence of death and we despaired even of life itself, that language makes sense to you. Paul is in a dark place. And in this dark place, in this very honest, even brutal context, Paul begins with the word of comfort. Still, I, I, I always keep it real with you guys. Still, I don't love this text. I don't. And when it comes to suffering, I want an explanation. That's what I want. I want to know why and how does it all work and what are the reasons for all this? And I think that there are some answers to those questions. I think Christianity gives decent answers to those questions. That's what I want when it comes to these things. But this text doesn't give us an explanation. Instead, this text just gives us God. 
You know, and strictly speaking, it's funny, strictly speaking, Paul doesn't begin with a word of comfort. He actually starts with a call to praise. He says, eulogates, that's the first word, is where we get our word eulogy. You can see it in the word. And we associate that with the things that you say about somebody when they've passed. But back then it was more of a general thing to speak well, to say good words about someone. So Paul is is saying good words about God. And he doesn't just like say we should praise. He doesn't talk about praising. He's actually praising. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's actually in the process of doing it. He's singing, maybe literally. It'd be weird to sing while you were writing a letter, but it's Paul. He's weird like that. So I wouldn't put it past him. I think if you asked him, he'd say, there's never a bad time or place to praise. I I don't know what you think you need or feel you need this morning. I know that this isn't necessarily what I want to say about suffering. I know that if I had the freedom to just bypass the text, I'd probably say something else, which means it's really good that I don't have the freedom to just bypass the text. Because this is the text that we've been given. The series is Cruciformed Life, a life in the shape of the cross. The title is The Cross and Suffering. What does the cross have to do with our suffering? Turns out everything. The cross changes how we see our suffering because the cross shows us God. The cross transforms our mind on these matters because the cross puts God on display. I like that word display puts the divine nature on display, puts it in a prominent place so that everybody can see it for what it is. Question, what does God do when he no longer wants to hide? Answer, the cross. So then, next question, when we look at the cross and think about God, what do we see? Three things. First one, in the cross, we see a God who joins us in our pain. Paul says, praise be to the the father of compassion, and the God of all comfort. I want you to notice what he's doing. Even as he's praising, he's teaching, he's defining God. He said, this is who God is. The father of compassion and the God of all comfort. The word compassion is, um, well, it's kind of what you think of when you think of compassion. It's empathy. It's, it's feeling somebody else's pain. But it's actually unique. If you have an old school translation, it probably says the father of mercies because it's in the plural. And when you put it in the plural, it has the sense of active empathy. It's when you feel somebody's pain twice over so deeply that you can't stay still. You just got to do something about it. And Paul says God's the father of that, which means this is the source of such things. Like, active empathy flows from the very center of God's being. He is the one from whom it comes. This characterizes him. And then it adds on this, the father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Comfort is a stronger word than in the English. It's a word, it's a word actually literally means to call to your side. It means that God is not disposed to you primarily as one who's pointing a finger, but as one who's putting his arm around your shoulder, holding you in saying, let's move forward together. (laughs) This resonates this resonates. Um, I remember uh, those years of hardship. And again, being honest, one of the hardest things to do was go to church because a bunch of well-meaning Christian people will come up to us and try to say things that make us feel better. Try to fix things with your words, but you can't fix things with your words, can you? I'll tell you what made the most impact on us. It wasn't the people who tried to find the cute things to say. It was the ones who came over to our house and just sat down knock on the door, open the door, they walk in, they sit down on my couch. What do you need? Nothing, I'm just here to sit, <laughs> right? Okay. It's the people that came up to us and, and just without a word, just walked up and, and embraced. If they said anything, all it, all it was was some here with you. And, and it makes sense. It makes sense that this is what makes the difference because remember, we worship a Jesus who not only talked to lepers, but touched them. He did. 
Compassion and comfort are words about closing the gap, about coming close. You can't speak into my pain if you don't see it from the inside. This tells us that we see that God sees it from the inside. And Jesus tells us this. And speaking of Jesus, I suppose it's important to point out that Father of compassion and God of all comfort are not the first things that Paul says about God here. The first thing he says about God anchors those wonderful realities in time and space when he says, praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about a God who we see when we look closely at Jesus. Can we just pause together this morning and think about what is true if Christianity is real? Or or rather, what is real because Christianity is true? Because God revealed himself most clearly in Jesus, most clearly on the cross, means God cares not just in theory, he came, he joins, he shares our pain. We get a taste of this from the life of Jesus when Jesus shows up at the home of his friends Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Mary and Martha are there and they're not very happy. Lazarus is not there because Lazarus is dead. And so what does Jesus do when he shows up? Did he laugh? No, no. Did he sing? No. Did he fix things? Not at first. First he wept. And I know what comes next. I know that Jesus then fixed things. I know that Jesus raised him back from the dead, but Jesus knew all along what he was gonna do, and yet he still wept. And you don't understand the power if you look past the pain, because it's not that Jesus cries with you and then does something for your pain. It's that the first thing Jesus does for your pain is enter into it with you and weep with you there. Lazarus' death gives us this glimpse and then the revelation is completed when we look at Jesus' death. Here at the cross, God literally enters into our hurt. Here at the cross, we see a God who sees our suffering from the inside. Here at the cross, we see a God, arms outstretched, embracing us and joining us in our pain. That's the first thing we see when we look at the cross. Second thing that you see when you look at the cross is a God who will bring our pain to an end. It will be over soon. It's tucked away in there. You might have missed it. It's not the emphasis, but it's there. Chapter one, verse nine says, these things happen that we might learn to depend not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Pay attention. It doesn't say who raised the dead. It said who raises the dead. There's a difference. This is not just a cool thing God did one time. This is what God does. This is a statement about who God is about the kinds of things that he customarily makes happen. It's like those old Geico commercials. Remember those commercials? If you're in a horror movie, you make poor decisions. It's what you do. If you switch to Geico, you save 15% on your car insurance. It's what you do. It's like Paul is saying, if you're the God of Jesus, you raise the dead. It's what you do. And this is what the cross shows us that we might not understand otherwise, that death doesn't just follow life. It precedes it. The cross for those in Christ is like a microwave version of history, like death and then new life. And the unique message of this passage is that Jesus' sufferings change ours when ours are united to his. I know it's a strange thing. Is there in chapter one, verse five, where Paul says that we share in the sufferings of Christ. What a weird idea. Let me put it like this. I think what Paul is saying is that Christ shares in our sufferings so that we might share in his. He joins in ours so that ours might become like his in important ways. Cool, what does that mean? Well, a lot. It means that when our sufferings are united to his, ours take on the shape of his in certain ways. And the first way is that our suffering, like his, becomes temporary. It's not the end. I wonder sometimes if moving into eternity will be a really dramatized version of what it was like to grow up from child to adult. I wonder if from the vantage point of eternity, we'll look back even on our grown-up pain, our real pain, and I wonder if we'll regard it then as we now do something like a bruised knee or a teenage breakup 
oh, I know it hurts. And in the moment, it hurts a lot. It feels like it's gonna go on forever. But from here, we can see it doesn't go on forever. No, it's real pain. And then that real pain comes to an end. This means that whatever is going on in your life, hard as it may be, and hard it is, it won't last forever. The pain comes to an end. And what the cross displays is a God who raises the dead. And this means that whatever, whatever, whatever terrible things you encounter will come to an end. COVID will come to an end, thank God. Cancer will come to an end, thank God. Racism will come to an end. Envy and malice and deceit will come to an end. Poverty and injustice and abortion will come to an end. Domestic violence and sexual abuse will come to an end. Corrupt religion and crooked politics will come to an end. Doubt and confusion, loneliness and grief, they'll all come to an end. Death will come to an end. Dying itself will be no more because there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. And when we look at the cross, we look at the cross in our pain, not just so that we can see that Jesus shares with us in our pain, but so that we can see what he's doing about it. So that we can see that for those who are in Christ, pain is prelude. It is not the final chapter. It is not the final chapter in the story of those who are upheld by God's right hand. That's the second thing we see when we look at the cross as a God who brings our pain to an end. The third thing we see is that in the cross, we see a God who repurposes our pain here and now. I believe eternity because I think it's true. I also need it, I'll be honest. But there's a part of me that says, that's awesome. I gotta live today. I need a word for today, Lord. And he gives me words, like Romans 8, 28. Gives you words, like Romans 8, 28. All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. This is an important truth that we can think about. Maybe we can think about it generally, and then we'll come back to our text. We need to think about this well, that good can come from anything. That's the point that good may come even from evil. And it doesn't make evil less evil. And it doesn't mean that God ordained that specific evil. We need to be crystal clear on this. Otherwise, we're gonna cause more problems than we solve. And I don't know if we do this super well. I don't know if we talk about this super well. You hear us say things like everything happens for a reason. And I think when we say that, we mean something true. So I'm not getting on to you. If you've said that, what you probably mean is like there's some good that can come out of this. But I don't think it's the clearest way to say it. Because when you say everything happens for a reason in the context of belief in God, it's like you're saying, that God instituted this specific terrible thing for you so that he could teach you a lesson. I don't think that's how God works. I don't think that's what Romans 8, 28 is saying. I don't. I don't see that in scripture. I don't see it in Romans. I don't see it in 2 Corinthians. I don't see that anywhere. It seems to me that it's not so much that everything happens for a reason, but that instead we ought to look at each other in the midst of our pain and say, anything can be redeemed. Because that's the truth of God's sovereignty. It's not karma. It's not micromanaging. It's that God is big enough and strong enough and wise enough and good enough to even bring something out of the unspeakable. That he can twist evil on its own head and bring good even out of this. That, that's the general truth. So now let's come back to 2 Corinthians chapter one and add in some color. Come back to our idea. Christ shares in our suffering so that we might share in his. So he becomes one of us, scars and all, and that changes our scars. Our sufferings take the shape of his. And this means, as we saw, first of all, that like his, our sufferings are temporary. And it means, secondly, that like his, our sufferings are beneficial for other people. I actually think that's the primary heartbeat of this particular text, or at least I should say that's what we see in this text that I'm not sure we see elsewhere, anywhere, as clear as we see it here. 
It's in verses six and seven where Paul's talking about how if I'm suffering, it's for your comfort. If I'm comforted, it's for your comfort. Everything that's going on with my sufferings when they become joined to Jesus is that it's actually about being beneficial to you. Your suffering can bring good not just to the future you, but to somebody else in the process. And if you're hurting this morning, I realize that that's probably not the most welcome word to hear. I, I, I understand that. I do. I get it, but it's part of the picture and it's true and it's good news that the good that God may bring out of your pain might be for somebody else. I was thinking about this just this last week. Um, we had a graduate at the college over at Ozark where I teach named Elena and Elena shows up at the college even if she lives somewhere else. She'll show up via video pretty much every November because she works with this organization called Operation Christmas Child. And I'll be quick, her story is she was, she's Russian. She's grown up in Russia and she grew up in a terrible home, abuse, neglect. And so she was pulled from her home at a young age and she was put into an orphanage. And, and they did the best they could over there, but there was a, you know, they didn't have enough to properly care for them. And, and she didn't have literally anything that belonged to herself. And then she said one day as a little girl, she woke up on Christmas and they had these little gifts and it was a box and she opened up the box and there was just toys and crayons and coloring things. And it was the first possessions that were ever her own. And there's also this book that tells the story of Jesus in her Russian language. And so she read that she didn't ever hear the name Jesus. And so she read the story. She actually thought it was a fairy tale. She thought this can't be true, that there's a God over all of us that loves me and that actually did this to save me. And, but it was, again, she's a kid, it's a fun story. She's got her own book, lovely. Then she grew up and she heard the gospel and she thought, you gotta be kidding me, this is true. And she gave her life to the Lord. And she came to Ozark a number of years ago and she trained up to do her own ministry around the world. And while she was a student and ever since, every fall we do this thing where Operation Christmas Child, we just gather together some boxes of goods to send them over to orphans in that part of the world. I emailed our missions office the other day and said, how many have we done over the years? And they said, it's hard to say, probably over 800 in the last few years. That's 800 little tiny people who have never had anything to call their own never heard the story of Jesus, but they now have things to call their own and they get to hear the story of Jesus in their native tongue because of her pain. And I understand that this is complicated and I'm not saying, I'm not saying like, I'm kind of glad she was an orphan. No, like I would imagine if I could go back in time, I'd probably fix that situation because I don't know what else to do. But she would tell you, it's not the right question to ask, did God do this for this purpose? It's not the right question to ask, was it all worth it? It's the right question to say, look at what God can do from this. He can repurpose it. He can take something that was designed for one thing and make it designed for another thing. Sometimes it's not so obvious. Sometimes it's not the kind of thing that has the number like 800 attached to it. Sometimes it's not the kind of thing that anybody's ever gonna tell the story, but I guarantee you that might not be as true as you think. You guys don't see it. You really don't. You don't see the impact you make simply by enduring. Sometimes that's the only witness that you can offer is in the midst of my pain, I didn't give up. I didn't cash in. I took another step. I woke up another day. I kept going and I get to hear the stories because I asked my students, I asked them when we're talking about different virtues, I say, give me an example of somebody you know who's wise. Give me an example of somebody you know who's courageous. Give me an example of endurance. And they tell stories about grandpas. He lost, my, he lost his wife, my grandma I never got to meet her, but man, he tells the stories and I can know that he's sad, but he just has always continued to serve the church and he's continued to serve our family. And he's the most loving, joyful person I've ever met in my life. And I hear stories about ants and siblings who aren't always happy, but they keep moving forward. You guys don't get it. You really don't. You don't understand how much the world is watching and how much impact you can have by fighting for one more smile, for one more encouraging word, for one more day. Those that come after us will live better if we suffer well, so let's suffer well. We gotta wrap this up and move on. What does this mean? What are we supposed to do with this? First of all, 
at the practical question, what do we do? The answer is we, we look at God. We look at the God of the cross. You lock your eyes into him. You fix your eyes onto him and you don't take away. You just keep looking at the God that you see in Jesus, the father of compassion, the God of all comfort, the one on whom we depend when life is great and when life is terrible. And the second thing we do is as we depend on him, we extend comfort even as it emerges from our tears and our depression and our helplessness and our grief. Just as Christ joined in my pain, I join in yours. Just as Christ shared yours, you share mine and hers and his and ours and theirs. And that's how it works. God manifests his presence among us by our attentive presence to one another. So we extend comfort. Sometimes you need to extend comfort by embracing one another. I know what time it is, culturally speaking. I understand you gotta respect the boundaries and I don't know, find somebody within your bubble and give them a hug today. <laughs> Sometimes we extend comfort by sitting in silence. Maybe that's your application of 2 Corinthians 1. Maybe what you need to do today or this week is to go into somebody's office or into somebody's room or into somebody's home, knock on the door, walk in, sit down. What do you need? Nothing, I'm just here to sit. You just need to be there with them in those moments. Sometimes we extend comfort by singing, even in a place like this. I don't know if Paul sang the words of 2 Corinthians 1, but I wouldn't put it past him. Again, weirdo. <laughs> he was sad when he wrote the letter, but he'd been sad before. Just five years before he wrote the letter to the 2 Corinthians, he was experiencing one of those imprisonments that he talked about. This one was in the Macedonian city of Philippi. And so he was in prison after being beaten unjustly, illegally, and thrown into this undersized cell. So his hands and feet are clasped in metal. His back is bruised, if not bloodied again. And he's just trying to sleep and he can't. So about midnight, he turns to his buddy Silas, also in prison, also beaten, also a Christian. He says, hey, Si, you awake, man? Wow. I mean, I wasn't. You? Yeah, okay, go back to sleep. Count some sheep or something. All right. A couple minutes go by. Hey, Si, you awake? I mean, I am now. What do you need, Paul? Hey, you want to sing some songs? And they start singing. I'm not making this up. It's in Acts 16. I mean, I made up the dialogue, but it fits the story. <laughs> something like that had to happen. They sang. I don't know the lyrics. I don't know the key. Wouldn't recognize it if I did. But because they sang, at least one family that night was saved from more than just a sword. There is never a bad time or place to praise. And we don't know what words reverberated throughout those dank prison walls that night. But we do know that they weren't singing about life they were singing about God. And what will happen right now if even in our pain we sing? I don't know. But differences acknowledged, we all live under a God who was good enough for us to find out.